We are in Acts chapter 12. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. We, we do put scripture up on the screen here, but I think one of the most beneficial practices that you could ever have is spending time in God's Word. So um, whether you bring it in, in a, you know, a hard copy like this, have it on your phone, whatever is your fancy, I would encourage you to, to get accustomed to being in the Word of God. It will literally change your life. Acts chapter 12, we are looking um, at... A very moving uh, moment here in the life of the church. It feels like each chapter, as we get into the book of Acts, another, uh, another big part of the story unfolds, and you see this growing and thriving, but yet in this chapter today, persecuted church. And despite the best, ever, best efforts to defeat God, to defeat God's people, to defeat God's plan, despite those best efforts, they, they never work. And here in Acts chapter 12, we're going to see how we have a God who's truly undefeated. I want you to consider that. We have a God who is undefeated. Like we live in a culture today, in a society today that loves winners. Like if you think about who you see on TV, especially in whether it's in the realm of athletics or even um, you know, in the celebrity culture, we as a society in general glorify and praise winners. I even find it interesting, people can, can be horrible morally speaking especially athletes, but as long as they win, they get like this green light and it, like they're, oh, they're, that's my favorite person. Like I think about, you know, some all-time greats and uh, these, you know, these are people who our society is recognized as ones who are like the, in like the hall of fame of winners. I think of, you know, Muhammad Ali. He was the first to win a heavyweight championship of the world three times. Y'all know who Muhammad Ali is. I realize there's some younger people in here, um, and I don't want to just assume that. Um, Bill Gates, he's a winner, right? Founder of Microsoft. You know how much he's worth? $96 billion. It was the most, the richest man in the world, uh, like two weeks ago, was uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Uh, unfortunately, through uh, his divorce, his, he's not anymore the winner, right? Uh, he is not the richest dude, and Bill Gates is standing strong. Think of Steph Curry. Uh, any of you are, I'm out of curiosity, just, just my own curiosity, any of you NBA fans? Saw a hand and a half. Very good. Steph Curry is an NBA player, and that name may not mean much to you, but the reason his name is important, Steph Curry is the only uh, MVP, the only MVP of a season to ever win that award unanimously. And so because of, and I could go on and on naming these winners, and our society loves a winner. However, I think we have to be honest, though, is that regardless of how successful that athlete that celebrity, that businessman, there's always that moment, whether it's a huge fall from grace or just a slow, you know, trickle, no one can remain undefeated. I remember November, I think it was 27th of 2009, I was uh, at my in-law's house in South Bend, 
and we were, it was the day after Thanksgiving, we were, we were watching TV, and it was actually kind of a slow day in sports. I was sitting there with my father-in-law, and we were just, you know, kind of having a conversation, seeing what was on, and all of a sudden, breaking news flashed across the screen. And it was really cryptic, too, but basically what we found out was that something happened to the golfer named Tiger Woods. Now, y'all know who Tiger Woods is, right? Tiger Woods, as a teen, me, growing up in the 90s, Tiger Woods was like my golfing, you know, hero. He had like the, the game and the swagger that as a teen, like he was just can't miss entertainment. Uh, he, you know, he was one of the first to wear Nike, and as a basketball fan, I loved Nike. So it was like he had everything going, and the dude just couldn't lose. I remember uh, in 2008 taking a day off of work to watch Tiger. He had tied uh, Rocco Mediate in the U.S. Open, and they went into an 18-hole playoff on Monday. And I was like, I can't miss it. Because Tiger Woods obviously was in this, like, just mano a mano playoff, but he also had a broken leg. And I was like, this guy is amazing. And here you have this, this golfer, this, this, you know, cultural hero, this amazingly wealthy person who had just the ideal life. On November 27, 2009, the trajectory of Tiger Woods' career and personal life took a tragic turn. Come to find out, this man was trying to live as if he was indefensible or invincible. And unfortunately, through his own choices, this man was defeated in an epic public way. Now here we are 10 years later, And whether it's his physical or emotional and truly unfortunate spiritual health is just at rock bottom. And despite our culture's love for winners and the fact that we just praise those who are uh, undefeated, I think we have to realize, at least for humans, all good things must come to an end. But my question for us Is this the tale for us, for those who follow Jesus? Does our leader, the author and finisher of our faith, experience the same fate as all the other greats do? I'm going to suggest no, it's not. And I'm going to have us look in Acts chapter 12 today to see two reasons why the best efforts to defeat God never work. We see, first of all, this morning, the best efforts to defeat God never work because they disregard God's sovereignty. So here in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1, we're brought into a time frame when the author of this book, Luke, says, about the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. Just for sake of kind of gathering us all together, we're approximately 10 years post Jesus' ascension into heaven. And in the course of those 10 years, and it's really the text that we've been encountering week by week, we've seen a lot happen, haven't we? We've seen the Holy Spirit come down at Pentecost. We've seen literally thousands and thousands come to know Jesus. We've seen his people now start to scatter. 
because of persecution, but that scattering isn't a bad thing because that scattering has led to the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where God, Jesus, told his disciples that they are to go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. So what we're witnessing is exactly what Jesus told us would happen. The church would grow. The gospel would spread. Really, up until this point, we've only seen little pieces of persecution. Namely, we saw Stephen. We saw that Stephen was brought before Jerusalem and he was stoned. We, we heard a word of Saul, but Saul was gloriously saved. And now we are brought into a moment in the history of the church where it looks as if there could be some problems. There could be that this seemingly undefeatable religion and, and, and group of people is going to take a blow. Because what we find is the king over all Jerusalem, Judea, kind of over that whole region, his name is Herod, he does something very specifically to the church. And that is this. He lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. Let me talk about Herod for a moment, just so you understand who this man is. Herod is uh, the king called Herod Agrippa. We actually have a slide, Rebecca, uh, up on the screen here. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great and nephew of Herod the Tetrarch. If you read through the Gospels, this is like this whole related family who's been ruling in this region now for a while. What's significant about this dude here in chapter 12 is he was committed to maintaining the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And notice how he was committed to doing this, by supporting the Jewish majority in Palestine. Why is that significant? Because the Jewish majority, they don't like Christianity. What do they do to Jesus? You remember? They killed him. They don't care for Jesus. So this guy, Herod, supports it, and he also is a pious observer of Jewish practices, but also a ruthless suppressor of minorities when they became disruptive. Sounds like a nice guy, doesn't it? <laughs> you want to have more for dinner. Like, this guy is a brute, right? And specifically, what is he doing? He's getting, it says, his hands on the church. Now, unfortunately for Herod, is this action of laying violent hands on the church, I'm going to suggest, is disregarding the sovereignty of God. I want to make sure we're on the same page with what I'm talking about here with the sovereignty of God. And we have a, a slide here that, that kind of puts us on this same playing field. It says, author Wayne Grudem states that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties that cause them to act as they do. And notice this third part of the sovereignty of God. He directs them to fulfill his purposes. Let me ask you just a simple question, but I want to hear it from you. I just want you to, I want to hear it from you. Who's in charge in this passage? King Herod or God? Let me try that again. I want to hear it from you, okay? 
Who's in charge in this passage? King Herod or God? Okay, that's a little bit better. God. Who thinks they're in charge, though, in this passage? King Herod. How do we know that? He's going after the people of God. He's disregarding his sovereignty. And what Herod doesn't know is that God is sovereign over death. I want to read to you just these three verses here just to kind of get us up to speed. It says in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, about the time that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Here's what he did. He killed James. The brother of John, remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the followers of Jesus? He kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And notice, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, I'm going to hit the pause button there. Herod, this brute king, doing whatever he wants to do, disregards the sovereignty of God, kills James, and kind of gets a little bit of a rise out of it because he notices that the people that he's ruling over, they like what he's doing. Herod does not understand, though, that even though God has allowed him to exercise power as a king, Herod is not the one who's sovereign over death. God is. And even though Herod felt he had the right to exercise this unfortunate act upon the church, Herod doesn't understand who's truly in charge. See, Herod's use of power seems to threaten the life of the church, literally. Like, I can only imagine the raw emotions of what it would have been like in that setting to see someone you loved, to see someone like that you humanly followed, recklessly and unfortunately killed. And despite Herod's abusive power, James and many other members witnessed the power of God over death. Like, these guys, this man, James here, was with those who saw Jesus resurrect from the grave. So, just think for a moment, if you were in one of that company who saw Jesus have victory over death, do you think that would change your perspective in in, in light of facing death? Like, do you think that if you were threatened with death, knowing that you've just seen Jesus rise from the grave, do you think that would affect your outlook, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Listen to what they hear in Mark chapter 16. Mary relays to the disciples what she found out at the tomb. And and the angel says to Mary, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where you laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So here James, even though his life was taken from him, has Herod defeated the plan of God? Yes or no? No. Who's sovereign over death? Herod or God? God is. And God isn't just sovereign over death. He's sovereign over difficulties as well. Because we saw that it pleased Herod, or excuse me, it pleased the Jews when Herod killed James. Listen to what else Herod does here. It says in Acts chapter 12, 
starting in verse 3, says, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what did he do? After killing James, what does Herod decide to do? He arrests Peter, another leader in the church. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But notice, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want to back up for a moment. What was Peter's occupation? You know what Peter's occupation is? Fisherman. Do you think, do you think Herod... You think Herod wanted Peter to go out of jail? Like, here's a fisherman, and guess how many squads of soldier he has guarding him? He has four. Like, this dude is just a fisherman. I, I don't know if Herod thought he was like, you know, this is going to be an intense combat warrior. I don't know. But obviously, Herod wanted to make a statement to keep Peter in prison, but Herod doesn't understand that God is sovereign even over difficult moments. I want you to follow along here. When we quickly learn that Peter is in this prison, when we quickly learn that he is experiencing these difficulties, it might be easy. I think we're tempted to do this. When we experience difficulties, it's easy to wonder if God is in charge. You ever feel that way? Like when life doesn't go your way, do you ever find yourself like questioning like, God, what are you doing? Or God, are you there? You ever, you ever do that? Yeah. And like think about Peter. Peter is in this moment. He just watched one of his fellow beloved friends, disciples of Jesus, killed. And now what, is, now what happens to him? He's thrown in jail. How do you think he's feeling, humanly speaking? Think he's happy about this? But what we find here is that God can use even the most difficult moments, not just for our good, but for the good of others as well. Let's follow along here, starting in verse, uh, in verse 6 here, of what happens to Peter. It says in verse 6, Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping. I love this. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. They weren't wanting Peter to get loose, right? He was stuck there. Now, however, look how easily God frees Peter. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, in the cell. I love this. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Then get up quickly. <laughs> what happens to those chains? What happens to those chains? They fall off. My man had two guards, two chains, <laughs> sentries. I mean, like he was surrounded. But God comes in and does what? He says, get up. And the chains fall off. And it says in verse 8, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And I love this. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. But what did he think was happening? He thought he was having a dream. <laughs> like, he, like, humanly speaking, was it possible for Peter to escape? Yes or no? Humanly speaking. 
Herod made every intention for Peter to stay there for exactly how long Herod wanted him to. But is Herod sovereign over difficulties? Yes or no? Who's sovereign over difficulties? God. So, of course, God can do what we think is humanly impossible. So verse 10 says, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And what happened to that iron gate? Opened for them of its own accord. Come on. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angels left, left him. I love Peter's response to the circumstance. When Peter came to himself, like, you know, like, you ever get woken up in the middle of the night? Like, you know, if you haven't had kids, uh, if you don't have kids or you don't remember your kids being young, they, they'll come in and, like, like my, my, my daughter Ella is the best at this. She'll come in and just stand by my bed. She won't, like, she won't say anything. She won't touch me. She'll just stand there. And then, you know, like, you, you don't have that presence when someone's, like, looking at you. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of, like, like, Ella, <laughs> what are you doing? Dad, my blanket fell down. Like, oh. And, like, you know, that moment, like, where I'm just, like, panic. Peter here is having that moment. He's like, what just happened? But listen to what he says. After his escape, he has this epiphany. He says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and what has this angel done? Rescued me from the hand of Herod. Who's sovereign? I know I keep making you say this, but you have to understand this, but also believe this. Who's sovereign, Herod or God? God is sovereign over death and even the very difficulties. Did it look like Peter was going to be able to get out of the situation he was in? But what does God do? Pokes him in the side, says, get up, get your clothes on, let's get out of here. God does it. Now, if you thought that was funny or humorous, I love this next part. What we find here is, you can imagine, Peter's now an escaped, wanted felon. Like, like this, let's talk real here. Like, this is a dude who is in jail and has now escaped. So he's not going to be walking, like, you know, just, you know, singing in the rain down the middle of the street, right? He's going to go find a place to hide himself. So when he realized this, it says, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together. And do you remember what they were doing? They were praying. They believed that God was sovereign over death. These people believed God was sovereign over difficulties. So what did they do? They prayed. And when he knocked at the door of the doorway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, what did she do? She didn't open the door. <laughs> she just ran back and told him that Peter was staying at the gate. Can you imagine this girl, she goes to answer the door. She hears the voice of Peter. She gets so excited, she just leaves him outside. She runs back in and says, guess what? Peter's at the door. So someone's like, why is he not inside? Or what do you mean Peter's at the door? Because look at their response. They said to her, what? You're out of your mind. 
We'd say today, you're tripping, you're crazy. And they said, it's his angel. But look, I love verse 16. But Peter, what did he do? He continued knocking. He said, open the door. I want to come in. I'm an escaped convict. And when they opened it, they saw him and were what? You know why they were amazed? Not just because they saw Peter. Because they saw that God is sovereign even over difficult situations. They prayed and they believed that God could work. And you can imagine they were pretty excited because look what Peter says in verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James, the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers And he departed and went to another place. Now, as the morning comes, the word gets out to Herod what happens. And you can imagine, Herod did not take this lightly. It says, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. Herod thinks he's sovereign. He thinks he is in charge. And how dare his soldiers let go of his prize. So what happened to those soldiers? After searching for them and not finding Peter, what does he do? He kills those sentries. He kills those soldiers. Herod believes he's sovereign over difficulties and over death. So I want to make sure right now we don't miss the forest here for the trees. You see, God has a plan that is not altered by death or by difficulty. Even though Herod disregards the sovereignty of God's plan through unjust and unloving actions, we cannot forget the promises of God. I want you to listen to these promises here that my wife read from Psalm 23. Just listen to these words again. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does David say? I will what? I will fear no evil. I wonder what Peter was saying to himself that night when he was in that jail. I wonder if, if these verses came to his mind, chained up, locked up, And knowing that God's rod and God's staff will comfort him. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me ask you this. What are you experiencing this morning in the face of death or difficulty that's causing you anxiety. Like, I'm pretty sure none of us in here are facing death threats. I mean, I, I just would assume that. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm unaware. And, and hopefully, you know, that would be truly unfortunate if that was the case. But my guess is that's not the case. But does that mean that we're not experiencing difficulties? No. I guarantee that right now you are sitting here And you are asking and wondering, whether it's in the face of of, a family illness or a personal trial, you're asking, is God sovereign? 
is what, and let me put this in like hopefully very simple terms. Because of the difficulties and circumstances of your life, you're questioning whether or not God is truly in control. And my hope is that as you witness what's happening here, the testimony of the church, despite whatever difficulty you might be experiencing, God is sovereign over it. And he is actually using it for your good and for his glory. You know, whether it's your health, your marriage, your your family, your workplace, you know, whatever it is, if we believe God is sovereign, death nor difficulties should rock our faith in him. And, And this may sound crazy, but actually death and difficulties can become the very fuel by which we grow. So even in the most difficult and defeating moments, if we believe that our God is truly the undefeated God and that he is sovereign over death and difficulties, we can look in the face of the most challenging circumstances and not lose faith and not be discouraged and not worry. We see it here in Acts 12. Are you experiencing it in your life today? You see, God is sovereign. And Herod learns that the best efforts to defeat God never work. Because number one, they disregard his sovereignty. And quickly here, number two, they disrespect his supremacy. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, the king's servant. They asked for peace, and here's why. Their country depended on the king's country for good. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Let me hit the pause button, look up here. What you have happening here is Herod is once again exercising what he thought was his sovereignty. Now you have this group of people that's dependent upon his kingdom for for their livelihood, and Herod is bothered by them. So now in this, what we learn from the ancient Jewish scholar of Josephus, there is this this, uh, countrywide celebration of, of Rome, and what you have is Herod, in a moment of this true spectacle, getting up in front of his entire kingdom, putting on his royal robes, and making an oration to them. He's basically you know, giving the state of his kingdom's address. Look what happens. This man who thought he was sovereign, who thought he was supreme, after this wonderful oration, the people were shouting, the voice of a what? Of a God and not of a man. Now Herod already believed he was sovereign over death and difficulties. And my guess is Herod probably also thought he was supreme. So that when he heard this praise, he didn't reject it. He received it. And verse 23 says, immediately... An angel 
of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And listen to this gruesome and horrific death. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I want you to think of the sobering circumstance that we have just witnessed. This man who thought he was sovereign, who thought he was supreme, is now what? Dead. By a gruesome death. I want you to notice the intentional work here of the author of this book of Luke. I want you to notice what verse 24 says. If we can get that next slide up there. Verse 24 says this. But the word of God, what? Now think about this for a moment. How's Herod doing? The one who thought he was sovereign, the one who thought he was supreme is now what? But what is the word of God doing? It's multiplying. It's increasing. And it's not just that the word of God is increasing and multiplying. The servants of God are completing their task as well. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We find that God is truly sovereign and truly supreme. He's the undefeated God. And Luke reminds us so clearly that despite our best efforts to defeat God, they'll never work. Even if we disregard his sovereignty, even if we disrespect his supremacy, God is the undefeated God. And just in case you need one more reminder, I want to bring you to Revelation 21. And I want you to listen once again to the words of God and listen to what this undefeated God has as a plan for his future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Notice what this God does. He will wipe away every tear. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. Who is truly undefeated? It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for the, these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But notice this warning. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion won't be in that new Jerusalem. It won't be where God is their God, and they will be His people. It will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Herod learned this, didn't he? Herod learned this, didn't he? He thought he was sovereign. He thought he was supreme. But he learned that God is the undefeated God. Let me ask you this. Since God is sovereign and supreme, do you think that the the actions in your workplace surprise him? Do you think what happens in your work surprises God? Since God is sovereign and supreme, do you think the physical illnesses we contract that our family members contract, do you think they, they, they alarm God? Since God is sovereign and supreme, do you think like the political turmoil and unrest in our country and our world threaten God? Since God is sovereign and supreme, do you think that the brokenness in our lives or our families or in our culture today perplex and confuse God? You know, since the best efforts to defeat God never work, let me ask you this. What fears or past failures or present habits need to be addressed in your life for the sake of your physical or emotional or spiritual health? Like, we have found here from Scripture that God is undefeated. And the best attempts that disregard his sovereignty or disrespect his supremacy end in failure. So what do we have to be fearful of? What do we have to be anxious for? We can live lives filled with faith, even looking at the most difficult and challenging of circumstances. We've seen it here in Acts 12. Many of you have lived this personally. And this morning, let me invite you again to place your faith and your trust in the undefeated God. Join me in prayer. Lord, we need you this morning. Father, we need you to work in us, to work through us. Lord, to change us, to make us more like you. This morning, if you're here, and as you heard this message this morning, if there is in your spirit unrest, maybe because there is a difficulty that you're facing, that you are having a hard time working through, or seeing God through. I want to invite you once we're done to come find me, to come find Brent, to come find Luke. If you need prayer, encouragement, you're in the right place. I would say though that there could be someone here this morning that does not find, at least at this point, comfort from this message. 
Because maybe you have never placed your faith in the undefeated God. Maybe there is no relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, in the face of difficulties, in the face of death, you have fear. You've disregarded the sovereignty of God. You've disrespected his supremacy. And now you potentially are fearing the same judgment that Herod faced. And if that's the case, I want to invite you to not have fear any longer, but to put your faith in Jesus, the way and the truth in the life, and that whoever would call upon his name as Lord would be saved. That could be your testimony this morning, that right now in your seat, you stopped your life of rebellion by turning to Jesus, the only one who can save you. And you could leave this gathering with assurance that you belong as a family member to this undefeated God. This morning, if you need prayer, this morning, if you need to to talk with someone about your relationship with God, I would invite you before you leave this morning to do just that. This is the time. This is the place. God is sovereign. He is supreme. Would you obey him today?